When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everybody, welcome to the Sharp Tongue Podcast. I'm your girl, Jessie Mapeluso. Another week, another freak. In the sheets and in the streets. You know, why do I have to be a lady in the streets and a freak in the sheets? Can't I just flip it? It's going to be a hot girl summer. Lock up your moms because I'm coming for your dads. I- I'm not a homewrecker. I'm not. I'm just, I'm going to improve the home because you know your parents hate each other. Hey, how's everybody doing? <laughs> Check out the YouTube page if you want to watch the pod. The YouTube videos, the videos go up on YouTube on Wednesdays. Podcast release on Tuesdays. We're getting our shit fucking organized, y'all. Go to youtube.com forward slash Jesse May Peluso to check out the video. Like, subscribe, tell your friends. Tell your friends to support the podcast. Okay? Check it out. Tell them to listen. Tell their friends to tell their friends. Tell them to follow. Not me in the grocery store, but just me in my career life, okay? We got to have some separation. And guys, my tour is going to be released this week. Website, jessiemay.com. That's where the tickets will be available. I am going to be all over, all over you and your dad. Let's see. What do we got coming up? Well, the end of the year is going to be amazing because I'm ending the year in my hometown of Syracuse, New York. So New Year's Eve will be at the Funny Bone in Syracuse, New York. So plan for that. August, I'm going to be in Connecticut, the 19th to the 21st. The 24th and 26th, I'll be in New Jersey. Also, let's see, September, I'm coming to Alaska, the 9th through 11th. Vancouver, British Columbia, 16th through the 18th. Mall of, oh, not Mall of America, West Edmonton Mall. That's going to be in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, the 23rd to the 25th. We have so many other dates. I'll be in New York, Rhode Island, um, Poughkeepsie. What the fuck is that? Isn't that where Groundhog Day was filmed? Uh, Atlanta, Texas, Florida, Key West, uh, Texas some more, Minnesota. I'm coming all over everyone. (laughs) That came out horribly wrong. Check it out. Check out the tour. The tickets will be live this Friday. Also, make sure, go to the YouTube page. 
check it out. Your girl is is coming out with a bang. And don't forget to check out my new Netflix show on Netflix, July 28th, I believe is our premiere date, Tattoo Redo. It's something that I worked on when I was going through the difficulty of my mother being sick and losing my mother. So even though the show sounds like it's just fluff, it really is important to me. It was a very hard time in my life. And the fact that I was even able to be supported as much as I was by Netflix and finish the project, I feel very, very proud about. So no matter what happens, it's one of the greatest jobs I've ever had. And it really made, it gave me purpose through a really difficult time. So July 28th, Tattoo Redo, check it out. It's going to be fucking great. I can't wait to see what 2022 brings. I am so excited about the tour. I'm going to be touring solo. Um, the name of the tour will be released in a couple days. And the tickets, like I said, will be available on Friday, as well as a surprise uh, event that will be happening this year and in next year and a, a podcast that I'm releasing with a best friend of mine. That's all I'm going to say. Some of you might know by now, but those of you who know, know. And those of you who want to know, will find out. It's going to be a jam-packed 2022 coming off of a very sleepy 2020. So I'm ready. I'm ready for you. Are you guys ready for me? Are you guys ready for this episode? This is a really special episode for me. I had the opportunity to sit down with a family member of mine, someone who I've always looked up to. She really is one of the reasons I got the fuck out of Syracuse. She's one of the reasons I've achieved what I've achieved today and continue striving. And she's one of the reasons why I've thought when I was younger, I thought outside of the box growing up in a quote unquote smaller town, I knew that there was more I could achieve because I watched this bitch achieve it. I watched her literally go from the bottom to the top and literally go from an assistant to a CEO. She's so amazing in so many different ways. She's beautiful inside and out. She's a mother and she is a manager and she is a boss and she is a CEO. She is just uh, one of the greatest people and women that I know and have the pleasure of being related to. Please welcome the multi-talented, multifaceted co-president of Asylum Records, Miss Gabrielle Peluso. Sharp Tongue Podcast. Beep, 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 beep. You're listening to the Sharp Tongue Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse May Jessie Peluso. Peluso. It's a personal look. Well, it's not really a look because it's a podcast. I'm already fucking this up. This is kind of like a verbal comedy diary, a deep look into the crevices of my mind. It's going to get dirty. You might cry. You probably laugh. Hopefully you'll laugh. The whole point is for you to laugh, but you also might cry. I talk about my family. I talk about farts. farts. I talk about love, loss, comedy, how hard it is to make it in this biz. I'm a fucking professional. Each week it's something different. Sometimes I have a guest host. Sometimes it's going to be a movie companion episode. Sometimes I just ramble about the bullshit I dealt with the week before. You never know what you're going to get. It's raw, uncut, and funny. It's me. You guys, you you guys, oh my god, English, terrible English. You guys have heard the intro. You've heard me talk about this bitch. And she's here to talk about her life, her strife, and being a wife, oh my God, I'm a rapper. <laughs> Gabrielle Peluso. Who the, who the 
Who calls you Gabrielle? Does anyone call you Gabrielle? By the way, I'm a professional, okay, bitch? So I you use are. Nicole name. All right? When mm -hmm. I was younger and thought I was a boy, yeah. <laughs> I was like, don't call me Gabrielle. That sounds way too much like a girl. Maybe call me Gabby or Jeff. Remember, <laughs> Jeff. I, would, remember I would only answer to anybody if they called me Jeff. <laughs> I, I was like five when that was yeah. going on. Yeah. No, you weren't even born, bitch. How? No. Which is crazy because we literally look like sisters. Everyone, when I show them your picture or I post or something, they're like, who's that? You've got like a hidden sister. Because you're cute. I am very cute. Um, I have so much I want to talk to you about. It's kind of crazy because, uh, you know, you have family members in your life and you know them, but then you think about details of their life that you don't really know about. And when I was sitting down to like do research, which I do with every guest, I'm like, this is my cousin. But then I was like, oh, I don't know all the answers to, th to these questions. Yeah. And like one of the first things I wanted to talk to you about was like growing up in Syracuse for me was so magical yeah you know quintessential the parents were together for just long enough for the childhood to feel kind of magical what was it like for you you know because i know your upbringing was a lot different yeah. um your relationship with your dad was a lot different and since we're both orphans you know um your, our perspectives are similar but how you grew up was different so what was that like for you in Syracuse I mean I think when you're young you don't even realize it right that you're in the armpit of a state and you're like oh it's amazing here because you don't realize when you're little that you live in a shithole not that Syracuse is a shithole because I shouldn't say that Syracuse is an amazing place to grow up it's small town and we had a lot of opportunities there as a, as a young family. You know, we I didn't realize where we were until we got older. So for me, I loved Syracuse. I thought it was the most amazing city on the planet. And we, you know, just having my mother who struggled in the beginning when my parents separated, you know, we, I grew up with my sisters watching me and a ton of babysitters. I was a latchkey kid because, you know, my sisters are a little older than me. So I had a different babysitter watching me from the time I was seven years old up until I was old enough to watch myself because my mother, you know, worked three jobs to make ends meet. But, you know, it was a small town and I loved it until... I got older and realized if I wanted to be more than a hairdresser or a school teacher or someone's second mom, <laughs> somebody's stepmother, that's the recipe. Does your dad have another family? No, then you're not. I can't fuck with you. <laughs> oh, I won't be your side wife and stepmother too. Yeah, no. So I, I realized, no, we're not doing that. I was like, I got to get out of here. So I made it my mission to get the fuck up out of there. How old were you when you realized you wanted to get the fuck out? I think when I got into high school and I just had these like visions of obviously I knew I was going to college um, and I knew I wanted to be in a big city. So I think it was like 10th grade. There was this acting we could take we could take a drama course in Henniger High School. I took a I don't know why I took it. I'm so fucking whack when it comes <laughs> to that shit. But I still took this theater class, and I was like, "There's so much more outside of where we live 
And I don't know, I just became obsessed with acting, even though I was terrible at it. And I couldn't even fucking stand in front of a Henniger High School class and do a one line without being like, I think I made a mistake. I don't think I want to take this class. <laughs> I'm go back out to the softball field. But that's when it started. I was like, I think I really want to move to New York City and try to do something outside of being here, you know? Yeah, it's interesting how you look at the parameters as a kid, you either see parameters or you don't. And if you don't see parameters, you stay there for the rest of your life because yeah. you're fine. And then there's people like you and I who are constantly testing the boundaries and wanting more for ourselves. And it's amazing. Like just that belief, just that desire, and then having the ambition to follow it through, it really doesn't matter where you're coming from. Yeah. Because if you have that that insatiable hunger for more, you will figure it the fuck out. And you yeah. are somebody who honestly figured it the fuck out. Like if you didn't leave Syracuse, I wouldn't have left Syracuse. Yeah. I remember, I remember you coming back after you had moved to New York, and you had like your Jaguar. I remember that green fucking Jaguar you had. It was red, bitch. No, you had. Oh, that's right, because Chelsea Handler has a green one, and it made me think <laughs> of yours. You had a red one. You're correct. And I remember being like, oh my god. You you mean we can leave this town <laughs> and make it and make real money? It, I was like, what is she, I honestly was like, does she own an airline? Like, what does she do? <laughs> <laughs> Idiot, yeah. How did you find like, you know, some people now know what your what your job is and what you do, but they don't know what it took and where you started to get where you are now. So tell me, how did you find the rap industry and how did you get into Def Jam's doors? So I obviously once I realized that I was never going to be able to be an actress and what like being in front of a camera was never going to be my thing. I knew I just wanted to be in the entertainment space. I didn't know exactly what. But I was like, I just want to be in entertainment. So in college, I took a music industry course and I was like, oh, my God, I'm obsessed with music. Me and my one of my close friends that I grew up in with in Syracuse with, we just always used to like do dance routines. I don't know if you remember this, but we like would do dance routines and we would like make up. We would like compete at this <laughs> at this fucking club for what was the name of the club in Syracuse it was a juice 1018 no that was a real bar whatever country club was it country club no you no it was a it was a juice bar and me and my three girlfriends would like really practice and like do these dance routines and we were really fucking good we won every time we did it so i was like obsessed with the music scene so when I was in college, I took a music industry course and I met Julie Greenwald's sister. Julie Greenwald is obviously the chairman of Atlantic Records. She used to be the GM at Def Jam. And Cena, my girlfriend, Cena, who went to see her, she used to wear the Def Jam jacket in the clubs all the time. And I would be like, Cena, how do you have that jacket? And she, would, she told me the whole story. Like, my sister works at um, Def Jam, she's like a boss there. And I was like, oh my God, I wonder what that's like. I think I want to like be in the music industry. Like I I felt like it all happened for a reason. So I was like, I'm, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to like really excel in this music industry course that I took at Syracuse University, which is the college I went to. And then I applied for an internship when I graduated. So I got myself set up with an internship at Def Jam once 
I graduated, which means nothing. It means no money. You're just mm-hmm. going to go and figure out how you're going to pay your bills. So I just got packed up my little Volkswagen Fox with about four bags, a little plastic bag and some furniture. My girlfriend in college actually let me stay in her grandmother's apartment in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn. Didn't know how far Sheepshead. Mind, mind you, oh I, my should have, God. I should have might as well stayed in Syracuse. That's how far Sheepshead Bay is from the city. <laughs> the fuck did I know? I was like, oh, sure. Okay, I'll stay in Sheepshead Bay three hours from fucking New York City. So I had to get on a train to get to the city every day. But I got a job bartending at this restaurant called 101 in Bay Ridge. Like totally just made it happen. Scared to death. Didn't know anyone And it was the scariest city when you grow up somewhere like Syracuse. New York is like so overwhelming. Everything is so foreign. All the, there's a lot of people who don't speak. Literally. Right. So, you know, you're lost. You bump into somebody who doesn't speak English. I was always lost. Always, but always when I'm lost, I bump into someone who doesn't speak English. So I never knew where I was going. (laughs) Didn't know what train stopped to get off. I couldn't hear the fucking lady on the train talking about what stop I was at. I was like, Flatbush. You're like, bitch, what? Did she say Flatbush? Oh my God. Didn't know. Always got it. So it was just the first year of my life was just hell. It was hell. I was afraid. I was homesick. What did you love about that time? Like I think about being in New York and that grind and I, I miss the energy I had to do that grind. You do? Yeah, I do. Because I think about it now, there's no way I could live in New York again. Not in my 30s. Not, I don't have, I have a different, you know, set of, of energy levels that are limited. Yeah. But like for you in that time, because it was such a grind and so new, like what, what were the best parts about it, even though it was like pure struggle? I mean, I guess once I got acclimated and I, and I actually became a member of the Def Jam team. Like I eventually got hired. And once I got hired, I felt like, okay, I actually have like a family here. Like my work friends became my family. And I then started to become a part of the music scene. So at that point, it things started to become familiar. You know, I'm a cancer, so I'm a creature of habit. So I got into my routine. I, I got my little, I moved to Jersey City, which made 9,000 times more sense. I was five minutes from work. And then at that point, everything became easy. I got to work easy. I could get in and out of the city easy. I could do my job at night easy. And then that part was amazing because I was young. You know, I I was a baby when I moved to New York. I was 24 years old. I got this job at 25 years old. And here I am in the city with this job at Def Jam Records and just fucking making it happen. It was, that was the part where it was like every day I was pinching myself like, oh my God, you really are doing this. Like you said you were going to do it, but you're actually doing it, which is a little, it was crazy that I, that I actually made it happen. You know, it is crazy to like set your goals and, and, and then like to achieve them, you, you, you just have to go, is this real? I don't know if this is real. Uh, And it's almost like, it's like a blind ambition meets preparation where you just keep going and, and you don't really know where your next foot is going to fall, but you know, you've got what it takes to at least improvise until you figure it the fuck out. Like, I feel like you and I are both those types of people where we'll figure it the fuck out. Yeah. Um, 
for sure. What was your first, how long were you an intern and what was your first job at Def Jam? So I was an intern for about six months. And then I went over to, so I'm not going to tell you where, what happened in between that. Cause I, I, I took this ridiculous job for this. I don't even want to say it because God forbid somebody watches this. Hold on. Somebody watches this. Oh, really, bitch? You're talking about my shit? So I, I took, a, I made a pit stop and then I went in back into, there was a job opening um, at Def Jam for an assistant position for Kevin Lyles, who now owns 300 Entertainment. But Kevin was the president of Def Jam at the time, who I interned for. So I hit Kev like, can you please give me your job as you know, the job as your assistant? He was like, you don't want to be my assistant. You, you, we want to run the streets. He didn't think I would be a good assistant. So I begged him like, Kevin, please give me this job. I need this job. I need this job. I need this job. So he finally was like, fine. He gives me the shot as his assistant in 1996, the craziest shit. I was oh making- my God, the music in the mid nineties, like the oh. bomb was the bomb. Like we had, what were you coming into? What was, what were records well, that year? Things at that time were red man and method man joined together and they were, they did this thing called month of the man. So it was red and meth, um, onyx. Oh my God. Onyx, um, Warren G was huge at the time. Foxy Brown, oh. um, we had a domino. I don't know if you know the yeah. West Coast shit. Domino yeah. was huge at the time. Um, so when I walked through the door, those were like the acts that were bubbling. Um, and then it was me doing an assistant job. I think I was an assistant for about six months. And then uh, the publicity job opened up. So I just wow. Within a year, you were a publicist at Def Jam. Yeah, yeah. That's so fast because yeah. I mean, obviously a publicist job, it's so much more than just doing promotional work. Yeah. It is, it's a heavy fucking position, especially yeah. for the entertainment industry, the, the corner of the industry that you are representing. Yeah. Nice. Um, what was it like being a woman in that position in that time? Was it difficult? Did you, at the time, did you uh, recognize any sort of inequalities that were happening or just, you know, discrimination or was it not a part of your mental process at that time? Not back then. You know, you don't think about those things when you're just trying to get on. Right. I mean, looking back at it, I could, I could pick apart a million things, but you know, when it was happening, I'm, 26 years old at the time, about to be 27. And I have this job as director of publicity. I've never done publicity before. And, you know, we were, we, we were the, we were the generation of kids who started, you know, you have to remember black music has been around forever, of course, but the, the evolving of black labels just started in the early nineties, Def Jam, Bad Boy, no limit, LaFace, like those things all started in the late eighties, early nineties. So the executives that are running things now were babies back then. They were in their early thirties, mid thirties. So we, and then me coming up under that generation, 
it was heard of that you would go from an assistant to being a publicist in six months because there weren't a lot of people that knew how to do the job. You don't go to school to learn how to be an, a publicist in rap music. Like you don't take a <laughs> class for that. You know what that wasn't really a, a hot, hot course in right. <laughs> right. You didn't sign up for them for that in your, <laughs> in your registration form. So you have to actually experience, you have to go through it and you need, you needed relationships. So me sitting at Kevin's desk all day as his assistant, everybody that was somebody was calling Kevin, whether they worked at a radio station, if they were a writer, if they were working at um, one of the retail stores, they were calling Kevin. So I just created relationships with all these folks because I was on the phone with them all day long while he was doing 90 things. I would keep people entertained while he Gabby's was like, got the gift of the gab for real. Right. My mother named me fucking perfectly because Lord knows I lived up to my name. <laughs> but that's really what I spent all my time doing. I would be on the phone with these dudes from, you know, the PDs and the MDs and whoever was the head of Vibe magazine at the time, Keith Clink Scales at the time. Like it was just crazy. So when it was time for me to move over, I already knew everybody. It wasn't like I was cold calling people, I already legitimately had relationships with these folks. So all I really needed to learn how to do were the fundamentals of just the timing of when you got a song. Back then, these were magazines. There was no online. It was a physical magazine. So, you know, that's right. Deadlines. Things had to be in for print three months before they made it to stand. So there was all remember this, the source, the oh source, that's love when, the source, the source, blaze magazine, Rolling Stone. Like those were when, when the teen magazine. So like word up right on <laughs> all that shit was like, you know, though that was the marketing plan at the time. Like press was so important for the release of rap albums. So who was your first undertaking? Who was your first client? Um, that was like first acts were so, there were two publicists. There were two of us. So we kind of split the roster down the middle. So my roster, when I first started off, was Ja Rule, DMX, uh, Jay-Z, um, and Onyx. So no pressure. Go. No pressure. <laughs> like here, take them. Um, and, you know, at that time, it, it was, it was, you know, again, you're young. They're young. And the pressure to like be professional while you have all of these dudes trying to fucking hit on you or, you know, their managers trying to hit on you or the roadmap. I mean, it was a really tough line. I guess maybe that was the toughest part because automatically people think it's like high school in the music industry. So no matter how professional you are, motherfuckers would always be like, oh, she must be fucking this one. She must be fucking that one. Never, by the way. And it was just like, you just had to ride that line of making sure you were holding yourself up professionally, not crossing any lines, making sure that you were where you needed to be, not where you shouldn't be, which was more important. You know what I'm saying? I would always look at what time it was. If I was one of the last few females left, I was out the door like I'm out. Never was around just a bunch of guys. So that was tough. That was probably the hardest part. Did you have to like walk a line of being like playing the game, but also setting boundaries? I would imagine that would be a a difficult task because you have to be professional, but also you, 
it's a, a weird industry. It's like my industry, you know, the professional line is very blurred. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. You just, you know, you don't, it, so there's this, if you watch all these documentaries now on the Me Too movement and you listen to some of the women talk about the positions they were in, and th- this is no judgment at all, right? I understand how any girl could be in a position where she wanted to be somewhere or get somewhere and was afraid to not be uh, abrasive or just say no or any of that because she may have felt like she could be fucking up her chances of making a career for herself. Yeah, I can understand how we are. We're just... Uh, you know, we're Italian girls. We're like, <laughs> Go ahead and try and tell us. No, Muffa, you better get out of my face. God damn it. I don't give a fuck. Like you're not, we're not the one. No, it's not. And listen, there's a plenty of women who are not the one, you know what I'm saying? But I'm saying for me specifically, I was never in a position where I felt like I needed to do something or be somewhere in order to make sure that I had my job. Or secure my job because it just wasn't a part of my makeup. Just instinct was this shit is weird and I'm out. Or you're in my face too close, so get the fuck out. You know what I mean? So I'm I I never struggled in that space with a boss or an artist, no matter what, how, when, what they did to try. I never had an issue to be like, fuck out of here. Like, I say the same thing. It's like people say, isn't it hard to be a female in your industry? And I'm like, yeah, if you think it's hard to be a female in your industry, otherwise you you set your boundaries and you you have the game play for you. You don't play the game. It's yeah. it's, it's it's an output. Right. You have to start from the output. But again, um, I understand why yeah. there's some women who struggle with that. Like, that's why I say no judgment on my half. I, I understand the girls that have struggled with it. That just was never my perspective or my position. What were some difficult or horror stories from that time? I, there is one story you told me recently. I think while we were, we were in Aruba about DMX because he passed away while we were in Aruba. Yeah. And you told me the story about the Saturday Night Live appearance. <laughs> I have told to multiple people and they think it's epic. Can you tell that story? Yes, I can. I've, I've, I've told this on another podcast. Do you mind that it's not? A no, real- not at all. Well, I'll just call it an exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he, uh, I'll, I, I don't know, remember how I told it to my last podcaster, but we had a boss. His name was Lior Cohen who is now the head of Google. Um, and he's a, he's a really, he was a really scary back then. I was so scared of Lior. Like if Lior called or yelled at me, I would freak out. So <laughs> I am X is in the middle of times square. And on Saturday night live, if you don't show up to the rehearsal the night before, so you have to go to rehearsal Friday night and they do a whole run through. If you don't show up for rehearsal, they cancel you for the show on Saturday. So is that if you're anybody, they don't care who you whoever are. Whoever you are, you are not getting on that stage Saturday night because they have to run it through, tape it, and then redo it just like that Saturday night, right? It's Saturday night live. So they need to have it like down pat the night before. If they didn't have the all the characters there or all the audience or all of the um, artists there, then that would be too hard to just throw in while they're trying to do what they do Saturday. 
So he's not coming out of his room. He's got the doors locked. His managers, who are his boys, are like, he ain't getting up. It ain't happening. So I call Lior and Kevin, and I'm like, he's not. He ain't doing this shit. And Lior, Lior has a really strong accent. And so I'm going to do it for you. So he was like, you fucking better figure out how to get him there or you're fucking fired. And hangs well, around. Where's he from? Narnia? <laughs> where's he from? What the fuck? What, what country? From, I don't know where he's from, but that's what he's, but that's what he sounds like. The land like. of the hobbits. <laughs> but that's what he sounds like. Get him to the fucking Saturday Night Live, Gabby, or you're fired. So I'm like, okay. So I'm freaking out. I'm like, how the fuck am I going to get him there? Randy, my one of my coworkers, Randy's with me. We're standing in the hallway. I'm like, I, oh, man, the fuck? It's fucking dude. I swear to God, if I lose my job over this. So I'm like, let me in. Let me in the fucking room. Because, you know, he's, you know, if he was sleeping and you woke him up, you were in for like, you could get your ass beat. Like he, don't, <laughs> he didn't know who it was waking him up. He doesn't know if you're a seven foot giant or a one foot baby, he would just wake up and start swinging. So waking him up was never a smart idea. So thank you. People don't God. know a lot about his history. He has a not so great history well, growing he, up. You no, know, he's yeah, he had a really rough child. You know, he his story is deep. Like if anyone doesn't know it, you should read. Smokey Fontaine wrote a book about DMX, and anybody who cares to know the story of DMX should read Smokey Fontaine's book. It's fucking deep and he gave Smokey the real inside look at what he went through and it was rough um but he was awake and his pit bulls were in there and they sit next to him like you're gonna try to fucking talk to my to my owner we're gonna bite your face off so I'm like talking to the dogs and trying to get him to get up and I'm like you know come on we gotta go you gotta be there he's like I'm not fucking doing it I'm like Listen, if you don't go tonight, you can't go tomorrow. And he was like, I don't fucking care. I'm not, I don't give a fuck about Saturday Night Live. So I'm like, and he didn't. Like a lot of artists say they don't care about certain things, but they do. X could give two fucks. About why do you think why do you think that? He just his his mind wasn't his mind was in other places. He was just struggling. Just he was in survival mode all the time and he just didn't, it was, it was more about his fans and his music than it was about the promo part. He hated that the most. He hated that he had to go kiss people's ass to get his record played. Like all of that shit. He just was like, I don't care if they play my record or not. I don't give a fuck. So he broke all those barriers because he never did anything we needed him to do ever, unless he felt like it, like ever. So all the rules of, if you don't, show up somewhere, this will happen, never applied to X, ever. Like, they would say it, but they'd still play his record. MTV Awards, he didn't show up for rehearsals, they still let him perform, which is another thing that they never, but Saturday Night Live, I knew would be different. I'm like, in my mind, it didn't matter what I said to him, but I knew he wasn't going to be on that stage the next night if he didn't show up for rehearsal. So I got Brian, the bookers calling me like, where is he? Where is he? I'm like, I'm trying. You guys just got to give me a second. Like, we're not going to be there at fucking eight o'clock. We're not going to be there. Like they were pressuring me to get him there by 8 p.m. And I was like, it's not going to happen. I'll get him there, but it's not going to happen at eight. So I'm in my brain. I'm like, what can I do? What can I do? 
So what I, so I, I said to him, I'm like, you know, all you ever do is talk about your fans, your fans. All you care about is your fans, your fans. I'm like, every single one of your fans has channel fucking three in their house. None of them can afford one of your concert tickets. So if you want your fans to see you perform live, this is it, motherfucker. So get up for your fans if you want them to see you perform live because they'll never get this opportunity to see you again. You're not going to fucking blow this. So he was like, <laughs> he thought about that real hard. He was like, all right, you got to go downstairs and find me ice cold milk <laughs> and Captain Crunch. And if you can, then I'll do it. And I was like, yo, I fucking hate your guts. I was so mad. I wanted to take uh, the, his fucking Timberland boot and throw it at him and his dog's face. I was like, <laughs> not, not regular milk, not just milk. He wanted ice, ice cold milk and Captain Crunch. I'm in the middle of Times Square. I go downstairs like to, the, I'm so fucking pissed. I'm like, where the fuck is the closest bodega to the lady? She was like, uh, down the street. So pissed. So I just went, got, I had to go to three different stores to find Captain Crunch. Like, this is the shit that I went through that nobody would believe. Like, Kevin Lyles put this in his book. Kevin Lyles wrote a book called <laughs> How to Make It Happen. And this is in his book because you can't even believe that these types of things happen to you, like, as a professional. And, and you got to learn how to make it happen. That's so fuck. I went and got his ass some milk. And so Captain Crunch and we were off. Did he sit there in this in his room? Did he sit there and eat the Captain Crunch in front of the dog? And I was looking at his dog like, oh, I want to kick you on your face. The dog was growling at me. I was like, shut up. (gasps) I just ran around the city to get fucking Captain Crunch for your owner. God damn it. I wish you would have bit him in his face. (laughs) That's what I'm talking about when I talk about like people don't realize the outer limits of this particular job title that exist where it's like, yeah, sure. It sounds glamorous that you're getting them on Saturday night live, but from a to B, there's so many things in between there. Girl. There's so many things you have to deal with. I remember one time I was living in New York and you had, I think it was a 4th of July party and you had all your artists over there. It was fabulous. It was Joe Budden. It was (laughs) DJ clue. Do you remember you picked me up? Yes. In Budden's Hummer orange? <laughs> I think, was it orange? It was a very bright color. A color that looked like it belonged on a construction site, <laughs> not like on a car. And, and when you, st- so Allie and I are standing on the street corner waiting for you to pick us up. And you stop. And I, it makes me think of that Chris Rock joke about this, the, the rims still spinning. You stopped and the rims were still spinning. You're driving this orange Hummer. And we get in and we're like, who, who are you doing? <laughs> whose car is this? And you're fucking pissed. You're like, I, I don't want to drive this goddamn boat. Cause we were in New York. New York's not built for a Hummer. fucking Hummer. Hummers. But there was piles still stacks of parking tickets underneath the seats <laughs> in front of the fucking. I can't remember whose car that was. It was Joe Budden's. You were like, we, we had to take this back from Joe Budden. We had to take it. <laughs> <laughs> Because he left it parked in the city so much, it was like gonna get fucking towed. That is hilarious. I don't even fucking remember. That. Oh my god! I, I also remember when you were pregnant for the first time, and Emily had come down, and you know we we knew what you were doing for work, but we didn't really have, we didn't really understand 
what your job was and, and the full extent of it. But I'll remember, I'll never forget this moment where her and I, you know, we're both kind of struggling in our own individual careers and everything. And we went to get you uh, gifts from like target or something, you know, we got you like some stuff from target and then you're, you have all these beautiful gifts. You have all your beautiful friends there. And then this set of like Louis Vuitton luggage and cribs comes rolling in <laughs> And you like open the card. You're like, oh, this is from Jay and Bay. And Emily and I are like, should we put our Target gifts back? <laughs> do you remember that? Oh my god, I do. I do. Oh, How, shit. What was your migration after being a publicist? You know, because you were a publicist for a few years. Yeah. What yeah. was what was the next move for you? And at what point in your career did you know you also wanted to be a mom and to have a family? Because it is very hard to make both of those things work. And you've managed to do it. And I think yeah. people out there think, and I've certainly been told, there's no such thing as work-life balance. And I don't believe that. Yeah. And you're an example of that. But at, at what point you know, from becoming a publicist and your career progressing, did you realize that you also wanted a, a, a healthy balance to your career? Well, I think I always never was there ever a time where I didn't want that. So mm. it wasn't, I didn't wake up one day and go, oh shit, I'm 35. I need to find me a man and have a baby. Like that was never in my mind. In my mind, it was I'm I'm going to have a, because I moved to New York with my boyfriend that I went to college with. So, but then it wasn't working out with us, but I was, I'm, I'm a relationship type of girl. So I met Skein while I was in the, you know, early days in the industry. We met in 96. We started dating in 98. We've been together for 22 fucking years, 98. What's that from not 98 to now? I'm so bad with math, but I'm bad too. It's a long time. Right. So 200 years. Someone just phoned in. It's 200 years. 98, 2000, we're in 21. It's 22, 23 years. So we started dating early on. It was just the timing of when was I going to insert? Because he was my priority from jump. So I made the decision to move out of publicity because it was too stressful on our relationship. It was just, you know, publicists have to be everywhere the artist is. Whether if, if I, you know, if I DMX, Jay-Z, I had like all of the top artists. So if I got to do a Rolling Stone cover and the writer of Rolling Stone is only available to meet him in the studio at midnight on Wednesday, I got to be there. So am I, and I'm not getting home until four thirty, five in the morning. You and then you I mean? got to be up for the next day doing. And, and I got to deal with a guy who's like, yeah, he's in the industry, but nobody wants their girl in a studio with a bunch of rappers at three o'clock <laughs> in the morning. Like there's only so much he was going to be able to take, whether he said it or not, whether he ever, he never would be like, you got to choose between your job and me. He would never, but I knew it was never going to be an easy pill for any guy to swallow. It just is the nature of the beast, right? So I knew I had to get out of publicity. I needed a nine to five in the building or 
me and him were not, <laughs> we weren't going to get to the place where I'm like, okay, I want to have babies now. It was going to be too much. So I switched jobs and moved into video promo, which basically at that time was booking all the shows on BET, MTV, um, VH1. Like I oversaw the network. So that's, we had back then videos got played on the networks. Remember that? I don't yes, know. Yes. I miss TRL. it. I miss music yes. videos. Remember TRL? Yes. The yeah. big release of a music video was right. similar to a movie. Right. Part 106 and Park was huge. So Rap City, like, and, and I could do that because the hours were between 10 and seven. Any of the shows that booked were during the day. Anything I needed to do was during the day. If I needed to travel, we would be going to like spring break or a video shoot, but I could always be in my bed by 10 o'clock, check in with my husband, like, hi, I'm in bed. Yep. See you tomorrow. So it became, it was the thing that I felt we needed just so that things worked for us. That's all I cared about. I wanted to make sure me and him were cool while I had this job, but I was never going to sacrifice having a family. I would have found a different career path before. Yeah. I just never wanted to not have a family. I just knew it's what I always wanted. And I was going to find the person who could be that with me in this life. Cause this is tough business to be in. So he's in it and we, it works because we understand each other's jobs and we know what we go through. So it's like, if he's having a day, because he's dealing with one of his knucklehead artists. It's, he's not in a bad mood because of me. You know what I'm saying? He's having, he's going through it with one of his artists. So I know when to let him do what he's got. You know what I'm saying? He's not stressed yeah. out because of me. He's not in a bad mood because of me. And then vice versa. If I'm having a day with one of my artists or it's stressful and I'm like short or don't feel like doing shit, don't feel like cooking he ain't stressing me because he knows that I'm going through some shit. So we understand each other's lives. So it's never personal for us, which right. I think becomes an issue for a lot of people in the music industry when they're trying to have a relationship with someone who's not in it. They don't really understand the type of stress that the person is going through. So they take it personal. Yep. You know what I mean? And who's going to be like, oh, yeah, you, you have to go to work tonight at the strip club. But yes, yes, there's radio guys who have to actually go to the strip club with their like, yes, that's a real job. <laughs> yes, that yes, your man's going to be in a strip club on Friday with his artist getting records played like that's the job. You hear that, guys? All of you out there are like, I don't want to work. Now you can work. <laughs> Okay, because you can literally work at the strip club. You might have to take a couple of your, you know, items of clothing off. But (laughs) what would you say? Like, you guys do work. Like, I I look at all the relationships I've seen growing up, and you guys just click, you know. And what do you attribute that to? I, I individually, you guys respect each other's space, and you know, you both are so. um you're so set in your ways, but not in a negative way, just in a way of you guys knowing your intentions and understanding what you need. But what would you say like keeps your relationship working? What is, what is something that is just you need in order for it to work? So I think that, and this might be a good thing or a bad thing, but 
when you grow up with a father like mine, right, who is just a piece of shit, right? God rest his soul. I think that you realize, like, you can't depend, and this is just something I learned from my mother, like, the person in your life is supposed to add consistency, right, Mm. and value, but you can't live for that person. You have to have your own life. And so when my, just my dad and like Tracy's relationships, my sister's relationships, I, I'm the type of person that realizes that you can't find a perfect person. And if you're on this mission to find a perfect person, it doesn't exist. And so I always tell all my girlfriends who are single, like, write down the three things you have to have in a guy and then the three things that you just won't accept. And if right. you can put one of those things on either side, just be happy, man, because you'll spend the rest of your life trying to figure out, like, no one is fucking perfect. You know what I'm saying? So, like, for me, I I just, I don't put that much pressure on mm. him or, and because I'm not fucking perfect. I'm a pain in the ass and I'm fucking crazy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, like, who the fuck am I to, like, you know, like you, you just have to accept people who they, for who they are, as long yeah. as you're obviously not clearly, I'm not saying if he beat your ass and cheats on you, you should stay. No, like, but you can't over, you can't expect somebody to just come in a package with a bow on it. You know what I'm saying? So I yeah. think the important things that everybody just needs to realize and that's just comes down to any relationship, friendships, friendships with your sisters, friendships with your, like you can't expect everybody to check a box. You know what I'm saying? So. Yeah. And also like you saying, you can't, you're not living for the relationship that comes across. Like some people might hear that and be like, Oh, but that I think is the most important aspect. I think so many people live too hard for the relationship that they lose themselves in the process. Right. Because if you can't, and it depends on what type of person you are and what type of person you want to be with, right? Because you can't be the type of person who needs space and expect somebody who is needy for the two of you to click. You know what right. I'm saying? Like it's you you have to be in a position where you're okay with space, you know he wants space. And that's how it works. You can't be a needy person and think you're going to fall in love with a guy who likes to be with his friends all the time. And it's going to work out. It's not going to work out. You should know the signs of the things that bother you from the beginning. And those are the important things because you can't, you can't live for somebody else. And that's a lot of responsibility for another person to carry in life. Yeah. Especially if you're not communicating well, if you're just expecting them to know, all the things that you want done at the moment you want them done. And when they don't, you resent them. And it's right. It can become such a vicious cycle and the communication gets broken down. And then it just, you know, people just rinse and repeat that pattern in in their relationships and they don't put any effort into going, why? I always say this when, when, whenever I'm, you know, doing shows and talking about relationships, when girls go, men are such assholes. I got to stop dating assholes. You're dating assholes because you're the asshole. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, because you attract absolutely what you are. You attract what you are. Yeah. And, you know, another thing that's important is knowing what you're willing to put up with. Like you talk about writing the three things that you want and the three things you're not willing to put up with. Like most people probably even haven't considered those aspects of a relationship, what they really want and what they really don't want. Like that's such a simple task, but rarely people think about that. (laughs) They should, because that's my thing. Like I know what I, I'm just not the type of person who would ever expect ever, ever allow anyone to disrespect me. Like that's my number one thing. Like my, obviously (laughs) I don't have a high standard to hold to because my father was just the guy who had other wives and other relationships. So for me, my thing was like, I will never be with somebody. Number one would never be with somebody who would disrespect me and cheat on me. Like that's a, just a, that's it for me. That's the game over for me. There's other things that women are like my, you know, my husband isn't the most romantic guy on the planet. I don't give a fuck. As long as I know that my husband is respectful and I don't have to worry about him ever embarrassing me. I don't care about, but there's other women who are like, you know, romance is at the top of their list. Right. Like, that's They're like, who cares if he's fucking my sister? He brought flowers last right. week. He laid out this beautiful red dress and there were flower petals leading up to the red dress. And I'm always like, yes, yeah, see, like a guy like that makes trust me him. nervous. Yep. I don't he trust it. Do that for just you. Now, Mm-mm. if you find a guy who doesn't usually do that and he does it for you a couple months in, then that's a keeper. But if that's the first time you've, those are the ones where you should be like, red flag, red flag, red flag. <laughs> Why are you so smooth? It's it's our third date. Uh, hi, we just spoke on the phone for like three hours and you send me a Versace dress. Yeah, no, I'm good. <laughs> you keep I'm, that. I'm going to keep the dress though. I'm going to keep the dress, but you, you can lose my number. You can lose right. my number. Oh, shit. Yes. Simple shit like that. You would think chick would like consider, but not a lot of people do. They no, don't. they don't. And, and when you met Skein, did you know how long did it take for you to know that you wanted him to be the father my, of your children? Crazy daddy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, by the way, I'm, I. Or are you still not sure? No, you're an asshole. But I, the first time I, I don't like it, I even hate for him to hear these things because he's so fucking conceited. But the first time <laughs> that I saw him like in a club, like he was some he was Clue's manager. He was one of the artist manager and that's DJ clue for all of you listening. That's DJ clue. Clue, <laughs> I didn't even know who he was. I just saw him at one of our events. Didn't know he was attached to anybody in the music industry. Just thought he was just fine. somebody there. You're and like, Oh, he's fine. Oh, my God. Cause by the way, in New York city, I was like, are there any good looking guys in New York city? Like I was like, where did I move to? Cause there I were- know. Like it was like so overwhelmingly depressing. So when I had woke up with my boyfriend who I went to college with, I was like, oh my God, this is going to be really hard. Cause you would think they'd be swimming in the streets, but you're like none, zero anywhere. So when I saw him, I was like, oh my God, I love him. <laughs> marry him and have ten thousand of his babies, <gasps> and you did happen to have two then, of the most beautiful children. Thank you, and then, ever thanks, Booski. So yeah, and for you, you know, were did, did you guys just like plan to not 
you know, did you plan to have kids or were you like, let's just not try to not have kids? No, we definitely, I mean, it was like, he wanted to, it was just because we got together so young. We worked, I was 27. He was 24. We were babies. So he wasn't fucking ready at that time. You know what I mean? So it was years of us just with the bullshit. You know what I mean? He was so young. I wanted to have kids when I turned 30. He was 27. He was still living at his mother's house. He was like, bitch, I got <laughs> shit to do. I ain't trying to have no goddamn kids. So, you know, it took us some years, but he wanted a family. Like that was from jump. He was like, he was the best godfather to his goddaughter. Like that was the other thing. Like, again, for me, the most important thing for me, right underneath, nobody better disrespect me ever. Right under that was like, gotta be a good father. Yeah. Have a natural ability. Gotta like, especially coming from uncle Louie. Right. I was like, I, I don't even care. I'll take him not being the best husband over not being a great father. As long as my kids have somebody that they adore, like how you adored uncle Butch. Like I wanted my kids to have that type of relationship with their father. I always envied you guys with your dad. Like that shit used to just be like, damn, I want my kids to feel it because I think it's important for girls too. It is important for girls with their fathers. And, you know, we both definitely had different upbringings. Not that my dad was perfect, but I think in whatever part of his life where he felt he failed, he doubled down on Emily and I. Yes. And he did. Yeah, I think he did. And, and I, and he also really, him and uncle Louie, um, she refers to, you know, everybody may, may know my dad is butch. We might've talked about it on the podcast, but that's why everybody called my dad, my dad and, and her father, uncle Louie, uh, lived together. They were like the fucking odd couple And damn it. If wish we would have had a, a film crew there because they were just quintessential upstate Italians <laughs> busting each other's balls. <laughs> oh God, what a show that would have been. How did you, you know, because every time I'd see you with him, with Uncle Louie, regardless of how much he let you down as, as a kid, you seem to either accept it or put on a really great fucking face. Yeah. yeah. Wh- which was it? Or was it a little bit of both? Well, Tracy, my sister, Tracy, was always the thread because Tracy always kept a relationship with him. So it was like there was no way for me to not be around him because Tracy was always around him. So when I came back to Syracuse, whenever I was in Syracuse, Tracy was either living with him or she lived around the corner from him. So I, I would, if I wanted to see Tracy, I had to see my father, which if there was no connection between the two of them, I would have never, ever saw him. It would have been, I would never, he didn't go out of his way to see me. I didn't go out of my way to see him. So it was like, she was the glue. So I, you know, I didn't have any, I, I still don't. I, I don't think I've ever harbored a hard feeling about it. I don't think I, I ever like sec, it's, it's not, it's not a childhood trauma of mine. I don't like wish it was different. I, I feel more blessed that I had a mother who didn't force me to have a relationship with a guy who didn't want to be around I didn't have to go back and forth between holidays. I didn't have to split my time up. Like I know kids who are fucked up because of that shit, like getting between the two and having to choose who they're going to spend Christmas with, who they're going to go Thanksgiving. Like my life was settled in that way. 
My mom was my mom. That was my mom and my dad. When my stepfather came in, we had an agreement. You're not gonna, you're not my dad. Don't try to parent me. My mother was like, don't cross the line with that. And we're good. So we didn't have any, I didn't have any issues with my stepfather. It was the lines were drawn, you know, Linda made it clear. <laughs> These are my daughters, not yours. And I will parent them. And so we were good. So for me, I didn't, when I saw my dad, it was like, what's up, Louie? Good to it's see really you. A, it's a testament to being raised by a really strong woman. Your mom, man, I, I think about the women in our family, so many, so many women, first of all, it's a very female dominated family, yeah. but it, it is sort of a thing that happens when, you know, even with my mom, I heard that there was a conversation she had with, with my father where she's like, if you want to see these kids, you, you better see them and not do the whole ghosting situation. We're not doing like, this isn't a tennis match. You're going to stick around and that's that. So I think she might've maybe threatened him a little bit (laughs) and set some parameters. And, you know, people don't realize how much mothers like ours do for the sake of their children. Like aunt Linda, you know, putting those, parameters up in the boundaries because you know that's what it takes to love your kids and you we both are you know still close with our moms even though they're gone we still maintain whatever we can what um you know for you I remember I remember when Aunt Linda passed away and it's such a strange thing because my wasn't my my dad still alive yeah he was still alive so I hadn't had any uh sort of connection or any sort of, you know, perspective to what you were going through. Yeah. And I remember seeing you afterwards, uh, after the funeral and you were hugging everybody and you just seemed so you were kind of removed. Yeah. And I remember thinking, Oh, maybe she's okay. And then I went through and I was like, Oh no, she's not. And this, she's just doing what she needs to do to get through. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, what did that, when you lost your mom, what I know, obviously it's so hard and you know, so many people go through that and they, and when I've spoken about it, it's, it's what people gravitate to the most, but for you, like, what were your fears initially when you lost your mom? You know? Yeah. I mean, listen, it's so crazy because when I would be at her house and, and I would look at pictures of my grandparents who had passed away, I would just shudder at the thought of her not being there. Like the whole thought of her being in a picture but not mm. alive just was like, it would make my heart stop. Like literally like, oh my God, I can't even think about that shit. Cause it just can't ever be, you know what I'm saying? So it was just for, it, I just wasn't prepared. Cause she was still so young. Like your mom was like, it's just, you're just not prepared at that age to accept that something could happen to them. You know what I'm saying? So I think I just, I, I had to, reimagine like how I was going to function because you know that when somebody's a part of your day-to-day life, it's different. You know, we spoke on the phone every day, me, her and Tracy spent a ton of time together. Like we, she would make sure we saw, she would come here at least four times in the summertime. I would go home at least four times in the wintertime. Like 
we had a routine. We went camping all summer with her and Tom, like the kids and the, like we had a routine. So it was, you know, I, 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 you know, I've lost a lot of people coming up. Like there, I've been so, I've been a witness to death for so many years since I've been little that I just didn't know exactly how it was going to affect me when it was going to be somebody who was that close to me. You know what I'm saying? Like I've been to other people's funerals, like I've lost friends, good friends, but just something different when your parent goes at this age. Cause I'm sure if she was 85, 90, I'm sure it'd it would have been a different departure, right? Of course. She was still 75 years old. Like it was, and it was tragic. We weren't expecting her to go. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't, it wasn't, it, it was not expected. So I just, I don't know. I guess I realized you just learn how to live with grief. You don't you do. have to get over it. You just live with it. And you just learn, like, obviously over time it gets easier but it just floors you every, like last week. I don't know what I was doing last week, but I was, she gave me this ceramic bird that is, you know, was on her back porch that I wanted so bad. And I had it in the backyard while it was cleaning and it fell off the deck. And I, before, before I walked around the deck, I started like hysterically crying because if it was broken, I was going to go jump off of a fucking bridge. <laughs> my dog barking on the side. So I, but that moment I was so upset that I, and I just had like this little meltdown on the side of the deck. This is how many years later now she passed away in nineties. I mean, she just passed away in 2016. You know what I'm saying? But still all these years later, I still have moments of just on the floor crying my eyes out. Like it guts you. It does. It, it guts you like a motherfucker. I know. And you're like, is this where the term motherfucker comes from? Somebody <laughs> lost their mother and they're like, motherfucker. Yeah. How it, did it evolve? You know, for me, um, I'm still going through it. And obviously, like you said, the grief is still, it, it comes and it goes. How did you evolve back into work? Like what changed with work for you as far as like, you know, did you, did, did what matter did what mattered to you before work change after you lost your mom? Did things become less important? Well, you remember, I don't know if you remember this, but Talia got really sick. Yes. SJS. Yes. So Talia went through SJS the year before my mother passed. So I already. That's right. Oh my God. Yeah. So I already was living in a different headspace. I already was like, life, life is so fragile and like not letting small things really get to me anymore. Like learning how to forgive people, learning how to say, I'm sorry when I hurt somebody, like little things that I have struggled with. So like, so defensive. If somebody said I hurt their feelings, like what, like learning how to just be a better person. But I, I just went on this whole other my brain was somewhere else when, when Talia got sick. So when my mother passed, it was like, I, first of all, I didn't move out of my bed for two months. Like I literally just, after we buried her, I came home and I just didn't go back to work for two months. I just, I'm just such a 
emotional cancer type of person. Like, I don't know how to be in front. I don't, first of all, I don't like people to see me cry. Number right. one, that's a difficult thing for me. So I, I don't know, think I've ever seen you cry. Maybe once. Like, <laughs> and, and if I cry, I'm crying, hyperventilating, boohooing. So I don't want people. So I don't, when people were calling me to see how I was doing, I'm not picking up the phone. I, Cause I don't want to hear anyone hear me cry. I, I just shut down. I, everyone was like, yo, can I come see you? Can I bring you something? I just wasn't responding to folks. The only people I was speaking to were the girls that I worked with. Cause I had to like communicate with them to get my job done. You know what I'm saying? Cause I was still needed to do things at work, but right. I didn't go to work for two months. So I cried my eyes out every day, every night for two months, finally got myself out of bed and went back to work, but, you know, suffered from home like you're doing now after, you know, work and whatever's happening. You just smile through it, but you do, you just sort of, you find, you find ways to coast. And then when you need to slow down and shut everything off and you know, the other thing that I've really you know, I, I've stopped committing so much to other things where I'm like, I, I would love to come do this. I don't know if I can. I, I intend to, but something could change the day of, Yeah, you know, yeah. so much. And it's also like, I don't know about for you, um, different scenarios can be triggering. Yeah. Like I remember one of my friends was getting married and she asked me to go. And this was really soon after my dad had died. And the day of, I kind of had like a panic attack thinking about watching her father walk her down the aisle. And I was like, hey, sis, I wish you the best, but you don't need me crying and having, ruining your day because I'm still stuck in some space. So it's better off that you're in your own place. I never considered like those different things would be something you kind of, that could really fuck you up. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like Mother's Day. Mo- I, hate, I hate Mother's Day. I hate it. I hate Mother's Day. When it's coming, I get sick. When my mother-in-law gets here, I get sick because I miss my mother so bad that when my mother-in-law gets here, I give her a hug and then I go upstairs in my bathroom and cry for like 20 minutes and then I get myself together and come back downstairs and I'm like, okay, who's hungry? But like for that first 20 minutes, I'm like, God damn, I want my mother here too. You know what I'm saying? Like I want her here. Hey, Mother's Day. It is kind of brutal. Uh, Every time I look at like my girlfriends who have their mothers here still alive, I just look at them and think to myself, you have no idea what you're going to go through. You have no fucking clue. It almost, my heart breaks for all of my friends who have mothers who are getting older. Cause yep. I'm like, yo, y'all just, you don't know the storm. You don't know that. No. Ain't ready for this shit. The waves of it that just keep, fucking rolling you're like okay all right thank you universe (laughs) for real very fucking humbling um i want to talk to you so much more but i'll have to have you back on i do we've been doing this like grief mini series a survival guide for people oh shit we go deep into grief so we can do that on another episode before to do that yes i would love for you i'm gonna make you cry on the podcast that's my goal 
Okay. Um, before we go, <laughs> cousin, uh, what would you say to, I want to speak to women specifically. What would you say to any women out there that are listening that want to start a career or maybe have begun a career? What, what do you think are some of the most important things for them to realize, remember, and focus on when they're heading in a direction of a dream or a goal that they're, you know, something they've always wanted to accomplish? You know, this is what I tell my kids all the time because it's important for a person who wants to be successful. There's a reason why there's successful people and there's reason why there's not successful people. And it's because of the amount of effort you put in to being great. Just, mm. and it sounds that it sounds really simple, but I don't think people understand when I say that if you're the girl at the drive through at McDonald's, and you have a stank fucking attitude, I'm going to guess that you have a stank attitude in life. It's not just because you're working with a headset on at McDonald's. Because I've worked, gone through drive throughs where there's very lovely people who are at the drive through door like, hey, how are you? Happy? Nice. To and I bet you that that girl doesn't stay there very long because of her amazing attitude and her willing and her willingness to take whatever situation she's in and make it great. Yes. Because if you can't figure out how to get yourself out of a fucking pit, then no one else is going to. So I don't care what you do. I don't care what you pick as a job. You need to be great at that job. There's nobody that's going to teach you how to be a people person. People any person that knows how to be a people person will go farther than any fucking rocket scientist, genius. If you know how to relate to others and you know how to be friendly and easygoing and get the job done and work as a fucking partner and get the goal done by working great with others, you're going to go really far. Like that's what all you need to focus on. Stay consistent. You, you have got to get the task done at hand. If you have to get a job and you have to go through an application, an interview process that makes to, you have to get on a bus, a train and an automobile and a fucking plane and to get to, then you got to do it. You got to do it because somebody will. There'll always be a person who's willing to do what you're not, who's going to be better than you. So you got to get all that other shit out of your head and you can't be lazy. You cannot be lazy and be successful. You can't. You can't. Somebody can't. else will always get the cold milk. Yes. Like me. <laughs> Shit. I did a lot of fucking terrible jobs before I made it. You know what I'm saying? Like I would have done anything to pay my bills. Anything with a smile on my face. Because I knew I had to get the money to get better in order to be successful. So sometimes you got to fucking wipe people's asses. Yep. To get there and be happy yep. about it. So yep. that's, my, that's my advice. I think that's some pretty solid fucking advice. Thanks. Now, you know, most people I have on are like, they have podcasts or they have albums coming out or, you know, something. I, you are the co-president of Asylum Records, but where, where can my listeners support you and what your endeavors are? Hmm. Good question. You got any 
albums dropping any new artists to check out um where yeah. can they find asylum's uh roster go on to our asylum instagram page which is popping because i have amazing little social media coordinator who i'm going to give a shout out to right now my girl l who oversees our our social media platforms check it out we got i'll post it amazing artist on our roster that you guys should all be familiar with. I will post the asylum Instagram handle in the show notes. Appreciate it. Cuzzo. I love you. Cuzzo. Thank you for the inspiration. And like, seriously watching you get the fuck out of Syracuse made me realize that I could get the fuck out of Syracuse. And now we're both the fuck out of Syracuse. Nothing against Syracuse. I love it. I go back. I'm, 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 I'm a fan. I have the t-shirts. Me too. But the point being is seeing you achieve made me believe. And so I love you for that. And I appreciate you. Love you, babe. So proud of you too. And all of your successes because you're a rock star. Thank you. Oh, I love you. And I'll be out in New Jersey in August. So I'll be running probably bare ass through your backyard, chasing all your cats. (laughs) See you then. I love you. Love you. Bye, cuz. Bye, boo. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.